Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Karma You podcast. This is your host, Chloe Brotheridge. Welcome. I'm a coach, a hypnotherapist, and I'm the author of The Anxiety Solution and Brave New Girl. And today on the podcast, I've got the wonderful Julia Samuel, MBE, who is a psychotherapist. She's also the author of two books, Grief Works and her latest book, This Too Shall Pass, which is all about how to navigate changes. And, you know, we're so scared of change, aren't we? On one hand, we really want change. We want transformation. And on the other hand, how many of us can get stuck keeping things the same because change just feels too scary and it feels safer to stick with what we know even though it's uncomfortable. So we talk about this whole topic of change, we discuss what's known as the fertile void and I love how Julia explains this and how we can cultivate this in our lives and it can help us to um, handle changes in our lives. We talk about how busyness stops us from healing and what we need to do instead. We also get into the topic of grief and what to say to someone who's grieving and how to handle that yourself if that's something that's affecting you at the moment. We also touch on the particular struggles that millennials and um, those of a similar generation face. So I want to let you know that I have some free resources for confidence, self-esteem and anxiety. If you want to grab those freebies, head over to my website, karmayou.com forward slash free and I'll send you lots of resources, worksheets, downloads, updates about the podcast. Head over to karmayou.com forward slash free. So let's get into the interview with Julia Samuel. Welcome Julia, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? Really well, lovely to meet you Chloe. Could you please share with us what it is that you do and how, how you came to do the work that you do today? So I'm a psychotherapist and I've been a psychotherapist for 30 years. Um, 25 years I worked in the NHS at a big NHS hospital supporting families when babies died and children died. So I was the counsellor for paediatrics and maternity. And from there I helped start a, or establish and launch a charity called Child Bereavement UK, which was supporting families um, when a child died or when a child was bereaved. And then from then I've kind of gone on, and, and from there I sort of taught a lot and lectured a lot, and then um, I've gone into private practice in the last few years, about the last five years, um, and I wrote another book before, and this is my second book. So I'm a, a seasoned therapist and a new author. 
So one is kind of old hat and the other feels exciting and scary and I'm not even sure I can call myself an author. Amazing. And I, I can't imagine work more, I don't know, intense than working with people that have lost a child. I think that's incredible that you've done that work. What was that like? I loved my job. I mean, I loved being in the NHS. I love being part of something that's much bigger than me. Um, I love the nurses and doctors and the whole place. And it felt like the mother and father of my professional self. You know, I went in there when I was like 34 um, and I left 25 years later. And so it, it gave me a lot. But of course, the work was very, very intense um, and very profound. You know, I felt very, it's a sort of overused word, but I felt privileged to be with these um, young families, parents at the most intense, most intensely painful and frightening time of their life. And, you know, that they let me in and to be able to support them and to try and, you can't make better what's been so bad, but you can support them so it's, they can find ways of living again and loving again, given the terrible thing that's happened. Um, and, and that actually is very connected to my new book, which is it's called This, this Too Shall Pass. And the, the sort of premise is the same, that life is change. Some of the changes we have control of and we choose, a lot of the changes we don't have control of. So at the extreme end, you'd have a child die, but at the other extreme end of a living loss, it'd be you could be sacked or your partner tells you they don't want to be married to you anymore and you thought you had a happy marriage. And the process, the adaptation process, is allowing ourselves to feel the pain, not blocking the pain, to find ways of expressing it and adapting and growing through the change. Um, because it's the things that we do to resist the change um, that over time do us harm. So most of the things that we do to resist change are busyness, because uh, we don't think when we're busy, we don't feel... I mean, we think a lot when we're busy, we don't feel so much, it cuts us off. Um, any kind of anaesthetic, drink, drugs, work, obsessions, that all of that blocks feeling. And to, to heal, we need to allow ourselves to feel the pain. And then that frees us then to be released. So it's the paradox. Um, you know, the more we allow ourselves to know and feel what we don't want to know and feel, the more likely it is that change will occur and the more likely it is that we will then grow and thrive. I think that's such an important message. And I think not, not many people actually realise how much busyness can stop us from dealing with our feelings and how often people, you know, hear about people losing themselves in their work after something terrible happens. But, you know, how many, how many of us say that we're busy? You know, maybe 90% of humans, you know, in, in this culture. And so we're probably not dealing with a lot of our feelings really because of that. That's right. I mean, there's a kind of badge of honour that if you're, if you're busy, you're so important. Mm. But also busyness is an amazing distraction. And I think one of the big messages through the case studies in my book is that if we are to thrive in life, we have to know ourselves. And to know ourselves, we have to kind of allow space for that, to be aware of what's going on inside us, to let feelings come through. And if we're constantly on our computers, tapping, constantly working and thinking, feelings, that part of our brain doesn't emerge. 
because it, when using the neofrontal cortex, we're not using our emotional selves. So we're cutting off huge intelligence within our bodies and with that, within our sort of whole system that we need to support us, to balance us, to inform us. So people have this sort of white-knuckle push, thinking that if I push forward, if I stay busy, if I get there, you know, then I'll be happy. And my message is, we need to do both. Of course you need to be busy and get your tasks done, but you also need to allow space to kind of allow feelings to emerge, to follow your own instincts, to be in touch with yourself, and that then allows you to connect with others. Because business disconnects you from other people. And, you know, the thing that I've learned in 30 years is that the most important thing in life is our love and connection to others. And in order to do that, we need to slow down. If you think of your emotional self, when you're very busy, you don't feel very much. So if you want to connect to someone else heart to heart, when you look at each other, you have to kind of breathe and slow down. And then you kind of feel the movement with them and they feel it with you and then stuff happens you feel a real connection what comes to mind for me when you say that is how we, all, we feel so connected to our phones we feel so connected to other people but it's not real connection it's this kind of false connection and how many couples are lying in bed together you know on their swiping phones, you know and that sort of thing and not and not getting that connection and not actually giving themselves the space. Because we're never bored anymore, really. There's always no. something to read. There's always a game on our phone or a podcast to listen to. We never maybe just have that quiet, quiet time to actually allow ourselves to be or feel. or And let the fertile void emerge. I mean, I heard, I think it was on a podcast, that we touch our phone, our phone 2,000 times a day. And it's the last thing we touch before we go to sleep. It's the first thing we touch when we wake up. And really, we want to be kissing our partners goodnight if we're lucky enough to have one. And we want to be connecting with the world and breathing in the new day before we touch our phones so that we, we feel alive. So, I, I mean, you know, I'm by no means the only person saying this. Thousands of people are saying this, that there's a sense of emptiness that people have um, and this kind of searching and looking and wanting. And it's, it's from this drive and, you know, digital obsession and connection that in, in a way builds that emptiness rather than kind of properly being aware of this, your, all your, your senses, sight, touch, sound and smell. And that's how we're human. You know, we're not machines and we're addicted to machines. You mentioned the fertile void, and I really wanted to ask you about that because I think it's such a beautiful sounding phrase. Yes. What is that? Exactly. It comes from Fritz Perls, who was the founder of Gestalt, so it's not my phrase, I stole it. And it's often, like with most things, a contradiction that we need space in order to have fertility. And so it's a fertile void. So when I talk about it in my book, it's that when something ends, whether it's a project, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job... We ourselves say, what am I going to do next? And people say to you, you cannot have a baby. I mean, if you've had a baby, someone will say to you, are you going to have another one? If you're going to leave your job, they say, where are you going? Are you looking for a new boyfriend? They don't allow you space between the end of one thing and the start of something else. And what I find with all my clients is that people find the process of change very difficult, uncomfortable at one end, kind of agony at the other. 
And part of that is the not knowing and not knowing themselves and their sense of identity. Who am I now if I've lost my job or my partner? And rather than leaping in for fear of that not knowing, really to make the wise decisions, we need to allow space. We need to allow space to feel the living loss, the sort of sadness of what has been, and let it kind of come through our body like the weather, like a sort of storm. And then that can clear the space to have new ideas, to have a kind of openness to what is the right decision for us. Because if we do that frantic, I'm just going to get a job, you know, I'm going to get a new boyfriend, we, we miss out on so much of our own wisdom. And then we may pay the price later. And also we don't learn from the loss. So, you know, we a new experience needs to teach us so that we take that wisdom with us into the next phase of life. And if we ignore that wisdom, we don't change and we don't adapt. And that means we'll be hit by the same problems every time they come up against us. And, you know, research shows that change, you know, the seven-year itch is a thing. It happens every seven to ten years, whether it's developmentally or from events or from external events. So we need, each of us needs to find our own pattern and way of changing that supports us and enables us to thrive rather than limits us and shrinks us. So when you say that the seven-year itch is a thing, is that a, a fact of life or what is that? It's psychology research. Yeah. So there's quite a lot of um, psychology research, really from the States that that came from that if you look at the patterns of people's lives, there's a whole area of research about developmental psychology, um, about where we are likely to be at a particular stage of our life, what happens to us in different stages of our life. Um, And one of the things they researched was how much we change and when we change. And it's, you know, of course, individuals are individuals, but it is, if you look at yourself, I wonder if you look back over the last sort of 10 years or seven years, or even five years, because there's always flex in it, of who you were before and where you've got to now and how much has changed, what has expanded, what has grown, where do you think you've learned, where do you think you've ignored the learning? You know, What would you like to have kind of reaped from what happened mm. to you? Oh, interesting. Um, so you mentioned life is change, and you talk about this in um, This Too Shall Pass, why do you think we're so resistant to change? Or a lot of people say, I don't like change. You know, a lot of the people I work with have anxiety and they don't like change at all. What, what's that about? I mean, I think there's two sides of it. So there's the kind of PR advertising shiny life side where change is exciting, you know, change your life, change yourself and you're going to become the perfect version of yourself with the bouncy hair, the dewy skin and the sort of glowing teeth. So there's kind of that side of it which we kind of think we ought to embrace but never think we can really ever get there. But the reality of change, I think for most of us, although some people, you know, we learn about change from what is modelled from our parents. So if we came from a family system, mum and dad and you know generations of families that have embraced change, we're more likely to be able to embrace change. But why most of us don't like change is because we like the comfort of familiarity, because it feels safe. And it may be a horrible place, that familiarity, but at least we know it. 
And there's that bit of us, I don't know if this is true of you, where even when you kind of know you've got to that shitty place in yourself where you're giving yourself that shitty committee and kind of self-attack, there's a horrible familiarity that also feels kind of coldly, warmly comforting. Because you kind of feel, well, no one can hurt me now because I'm here, I'm down here. And whereas if you dare to change, you go out of your comfort zone, it's unfamiliar, and it may be incredibly thrilling, but you don't quite know who you are because your identity changes as you change. You have to then become someone who can, in your case, um, interview in podcasts. That's the sense of identity that's changed. You may have thought of yourself as someone who is very shy, and I'd never be able to do that. And now you have to own this new identity of I'm Chloe and I... I'm a podcaster. And so at the beginning, that discomfort may, 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 may want to make you run away, but you dare to brace it, embrace it, and then it becomes part of you. And that is the cycle of change for all of us. You know, that kind of, you move in, you dare, you test, you have a little taste, you withdraw, you go in again. And we move in and out of it. It's not like you flick a switch. It's a very long answer. No, it's it's really interesting to me. There's, so it's something about identity and fear of change. And if you identify control. with someone... Oh, control, that's such a big one. <laughs> yeah. Control. Because if we... I mean, the other thing I say in my book is that we think if we have control, then everything's going to be all right. But if you really think about the most important things in life, which is life, you know, who's going to die and who's going to live and what people think about us, whether we're loved or whether we're not loved by the people around us, those fundamentals, which are the key to the sort of happiness of our life, we have no control over. We can influence them, you know, not get drunk and fall off a wall or not, you know, drive drunk, but basically we have no control. And so this idea of control is a complete... um, uh, I can't even think of the word... Illusion. Illusion. That's the right word. Thanks. (laughs) Okay, yes. Such a shame, isn't it? I was like, I'm so in control of things, and then life sends me a little reminder, like, no. But you want mini control. You know, like organizing your day and structure, I think really helps you. Mm. So I've got eight pillars of strength in my book, and one of the pillars is about structure. Because when the winds of change come whistling through your system, if you put some sense of structure in it, that you know that you're going to exercise, you're going to have breakfast, you're going to do your work, or whatever the order is for you, it might be that you do it completely the reverse. It helps stabilise you when you feel in a lot of turmoil um, internally. So I'm not saying don't have it, it's just recognise it for its limits. Mm, so... So having that structure, a lot of people yeah, talk about their routine and how helpful that is when they're going through something to keep that routine. It's good to hear you affirm that. <laughs> Can you give some examples of the sort of changes that you see people navigating and how you might help them navigate them? I know in the book, it's really beautifully written and you have different case studies and stories of people's lives going through different changes. Can you sort of share an example of something around that? So in the section on love, one of the um, people that came to see me was a woman who'd been married for 25 years and she had three daughters um, and she was a gardener and she was deciding in this next phase of my life, her children were beginning to grow up, the last one was going to university soon, do I really want to stay married? 
um, because I'm not having sex with my husband. You know, we parent fine, we live together fine, but I want a new version of myself. And she was actually, at the time, having two affairs. So one with the man who she'd been having um, a relationship with for a couple of years, and then another, a, a colleague who she had an affair with um, for about a year, but then he ended the relationship. So she came with a lot of confusion, you know, with, she was Catholic, so a lot of confusion about what's wrong with me that I need two affairs. I'm upset that one's ended, and but I've still got the other one. And also, am I wrong having an affair while I've got my husband? So who am I? What do I believe? What do I want? What's right for me? Do I believe the old rules about what, um, you know, fidelity in marriage, what, what is right and what is wrong. And our relationship created, I hope, a safe place for her to unpack all of that, what she'd learned from her parents, what she believed for herself, what was true for her. One of the things was that she'd never had a son, and the young man um, she had an affair with actually in some ways was the son she'd never had. Um, so she began to understand herself. And once she knew what was going on, she, that she had a real handle on her internal landscape, it helped inform her when she looked at her world and what she was going to do and how she was going to go forward. And actually, she got much closer to her husband. She, she continued with the affair, which the husband knew about. He never wanted to... Um, talk about it. So he, whenever she would try and bring up their relationship, this may be familiar to many of your listeners, her husband would say, why ruin a nice day by talking about stuff like this? Um, and so she, you know, she was just silenced all the time. But she, anyhow, she found a way of coming, that she knew that she wanted to be a mum with a mum and dad and a family, that one of her things she was proudest of was the family and having chicken at home. She didn't want to break up the family. She didn't want the children to be responsible for their dad. So she kind of was adventurous and she had a a long-term affair that she managed while she stayed married, while she worked, while she was a mum. And she kind of came to peace with that. And one of the things she said at the end is that I folded a lot of my past into my heart. Mm. So you never go forward without your past being in you. But you have to kind of fold some of it away in order to free you to step into your new future. So it sounds like there's, there's really something about getting to know where things come from, where you're coming from, and how that has informed how you're dealing with the this, this situation now. And I, I suppose that's why having therapy or you know reading a, a self-help book can be really helpful to help you to get to know yourself in that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we distract ourselves rather than know ourselves. Mm-hmm. And the more awareness we have and the more information we have about what's going on in us, then we're better to, we're more likely to make you know better decisions. But also I'm not saying be obsessed, you know, get off get out and have your life and have fun and dance and be busy and work and do all these things. But when it comes to the important times in your life, when you're making important decisions, Give yourself the space and the time and a relationship with a friend or a journal to really explore so that you make the best decision for yourself rather than from fear. I'm really remembering the times that I've had therapy in the past. And when I first started having therapy, I'd never 
talked about myself before and that was excruciating for me I feel sorry for my therapist she was very patient but just being able to like hold this space with me kind of like desperate to jump out of my skin basically because I found it so awkward but going through that process and staying with it and examining the things that I'd never really thought about before never really considered like where anxiety came from and all that sort of thing was just so powerful um, so I have a lot of respect for all the therapists who <laughs> do such an amazing job of helping people when they really yeah. are trying to avoid um, dealing with stuff. And you were brave going to a therapist when it was so counter to everything that you'd done and you'd known. Mm. It took a lot of courage to go and dare to kind of feel that heat and that discomfort and expose yourself in that way. I mean, I, I more than therapists, I admire clients who kind of dare to move forward and do that for themselves and it's I think it's good to have this conversation about therapy because it's helping to normalize it and I hope you know people yeah feel more able to go and seek therapy themselves through having these sorts of conversations um can you tell us a little bit more about your work with helping people with grief because you know often when I've heard from people who've lost I don't know someone in their lives and found that sometimes people will avoid talking to them they'll avoid bringing up the topic um they'll talk about the weather and actually there's this huge elephant in the room this person's just lost someone and I suppose your your role has been actually to work with those people to do the thing that a lot of people are so afraid to do um can you talk a bit more about how you've supported people with with that in the past so I mean one of the things why we find it so difficult is that people are so there is very much a stigma around death and there's this kind of magical thinking that if I don't think about it and I don't talk about it then it's not going to happen to me it might happen to everybody else Um, and then that means that we have very little knowledge about how to talk about it and what to say so when a close friend of ours or someone in your family is bereaved we don't have a language and then we're frightened of getting it wrong and making somebody feel worse. So we say nothing, or we talk about the weather, like you said. And actually what people need most is acknowledgement, that, you know, you cannot fix this. You know, like with change in, in this two-shot past, you can't fix somebody's life. But by being loving, so the single biggest... Um, predictor of good outcomes for people who are bereaved, and it would be true whether it's a living loss or a death, is the love and connection to others. It's the support you get at the time and following the loss. And that's what we need most. And so when people, when people are, are grieving someone they've loved and they're missing that love, when people step away from them by not talking to them, it makes the bereaved person feel worse than they already do. So the only thing you have to do is kind of dare to move towards them, to acknowledge it. To say, all you have to do is say, I'm so sorry that so-and-so has died. So it's interesting you use the word lost, and that is a lot, often what people use. But also it's a, a word that avoids the word death. Interesting. We use so many metaphors, lost, gone to a better place, passed over, passed away. And really the person has died. They haven't passed away. We haven't lost them. They've died. So that, you know, we have this incredible discomfort and this desperate need to fix. But we can't fix people. I mean, I've heard many other people on your podcast talk about that. And it doesn't have to be around death. If we can kind of recognise that 
by sharing our humanity, by being compassionate, by being willing to sit with someone when they're distressed, whatever the distress, then that is how people um, manage their pain, is by bearing witness. Mm. And, you, and you mentioned there living, living losses. Can you explain what, what you mean by that? So all of us will have multiple losses. So, I mean, from the moment you have a child, so for those first months, your loss is yourself as an independent parent, that you could just get up and get dressed and get out to work. Now you have a child, you've lost that freedom, and you are at the call of this baby that's needing feeding and changing and looking after. So that's a loss of your independent self. And then as a parent... You have to learn to adapt as your child adapts. So when the first time you send them to nursery, kind of letting them go and not being with them all the time. To I had a, a case study in the book about Lena, whose daughter was getting married, and you know she was losing control of her daughter, and the fight was about the marriage ceremony. And often it's about the napkins or the colour of the flowers, but in reality. It's about the pain of the loss of the relationship as it was, as your adult child leaves you. You're, you shift in importance to them. You have to step back and recalibrate re your relationship as a parent. You know, you give your children roots and wings. So that, that is a living loss, but that's a long one over time as a parent. But, you know, every day we kind of take things on that we have to take in and then we have to let other things go. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So so it's not necessarily a person dying. We can still experience these losses along the way. In our moving lives. house, moving country, moving jobs, getting a health diagnosis. You know, your grief starts at the point of diagnosis. When you, mm. one minute you thought you were a healthy person who had the life in, of, of a healthy person in front of you, then you're given a life-threatening or a life-limited diagnosis, that's grief at that moment because your life changes forever. And you mentioned, um, you mentioned just now the eight pillars of strength, which you mentioned in the book as well. Um, you mentioned focusing. Can you share what that is? I thought that was a really interesting one to... A tool that people can be Use. doing. Yeah. It comes from Eugene Gendlin. Um, his... Uh, method of focusing and I use a lot in my book um, focusing to people to get people to it's allowing the wisdom of your body and your the knowledge of your body to speak to you so it's kind of begins to turn off the chatter in your mind and I get people to close their eyes and breathe and move their attention internally around their body until they find the place inside themselves that they feel most sensation. And then I get them to breathe into that place and describe it. And does it have a colour? Does it have a shape? And then say they see a, a sort of black hole. If that black hole would speak, what would it say? And then I follow where that takes them. And often it's, it's, in a way, it's a bit like um, analytic therapy, that it's your unconscious speaking, but it's a more visualisation version of it. And it's incredibly useful and powerful, um, giving us yeah, the wisdom within ourselves that's there already that we just have to access. Mm, I love that idea. And um, getting us, I suppose, to focus on the feeling and turning it into a thing almost. Yes. Yeah. And what's it and, telling us? Yeah. yeah. That's really powerful. I hope people are going to try that. 
um, listening. Um, what do you use? Do you meditate? Do you? I meditate. I do TM. Do you? Yes, Transcendental Meditation. Yeah. Um, and I, I try to journal because I'm definitely one for... Um, I think it's part of when, when you use Instagram for your job, I kind of, quote unquote, have to be on there. And it, it's such an easy escape. You know, I find myself, if I'm having an argument with my partner, oh, I wonder what's happening on Instagram. Yeah, like, this is a perfect moment. <laughs> so I have to really be aware. And it's a great reminder for me having this conversation now to keep listening to what I'm feeling in the moment and focusing and processing rather than just staying busy and that sort of thing. So thank you. And also in the book, there's a whole section on how to deal with conflict in, mm. the, in the love bit. Oh, yes. Um, yes. About what, you know, that we, we need to fight, that we learn from fights, but we need to know how to connect and resolve after a fight. Otherwise, the fight builds up like this huge pile of poo under a rug that you go back to the same fight and you have it again and again. There's John Gottman, who has got these four horsemen of the apocalypse. And what he says, he can be with a couple for five minutes and he can tell within five minutes whether their relationship is going to survive or not from how they communicate with each other, whether they're stonewalling, whether they're um, standing apart, all the different things that we do as a couple. So we need to learn how to fight well. Wow. Yeah, I remember reading about that, about contempt. And contempt. This, this micro-facial expression that people sometimes make of contempt with like slightly downturned lips is a sign that your relationship is not going to be lasting very long, basically. <laughs> yes. So be careful of that one. Women are more likely to be contemptuous oh, than men. Oh, really? Mm, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, I was really interested by one thing that you spoke about of... of different generations and the different things that come up in different generations and probably most people listening to this are probably millennials or yeah gen x and gen z i think as well either side but probably mostly millennials and you mentioned a few things about the specific issues around kind of change that millennials face could you speak about that a little bit and the struggles that so i think there's lots of things there's the context that they're in that the sort of um, environment is very different. So I'm a, I'm a baby boomer. Um, so I think millennials believe, uh, with some credibility, that we've stolen their future. You know, we've burnt the planet and we've spent the pension. And so we had a, a, a kind of very fixed um, attitude to life. And for work, for instance, you had employment, you had your education, then you had employment, and then you would retire. And you were likely to do the same job within the same company for your lifetime. For millennials now, that is extremely unlikely. So one of the, one of the reasons why my book's important is that for work you have to learn to adapt, that you're likely to do many jobs um, at the same time or do a job for three or four years and come out, retrain, do another job. And this idea of the 100-year life, that you're likely to be working until you're 70 or 75 and that changes your perception of, well, why would I start having a full-time job at 23 when my parents want to want me to if I'm going to be working for the next 50 years? And the parents are looking at their children saying, I've spent all this money on you, all this time on you. By the time I was 23, I had a full-time job. What are you doing going off to the Himalayas and meditating? You know, get on and be a grown-up. And so there's a conflict about around expectations, um, 
without including what's changed. But also the big thing is someone called Jeffrey Arnott, an American psychologist, talked about emerging adulthood. Because young people today have been educated much more, they've been parented much more, um, they've been brought up in a completely different world, they're not likely to be fully mature until they're kind of 28 to 30. Whereas I... Wow. I know. <laughs> and it depends what, what you relief. call... I do, it depends what you call fully mature. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully I can, I'm 60 and I can still feel 12, you know, at times of my life. But, you know, by taking responsibility, by being willing to commit... Whereas, you know, when you're in your 20s, what he talks about, you want to experiment, you want to try things out, you want to find out who you are, you want to check out more of your identity, and much more now, your sexual identity, you know, your relationship identity, all of the, the norms of, you know, marriage, all the institutions, they have broken down, boundaries have broken down, so there's much more choice, but that choice can also be overwhelming. Like, if I can have a polyamorous relationship, what does that mean? Or, you know, and that goes against what my parents and what I saw, and we're very likely to model our life on our parents, so it's very confusing. Um, the difficulty in finding a job because of the um, economic crisis in 2008, the fear from, you know, from, the, from 9-11. So there's, I think, what I see with... I've got eight case studies of millennials in my book... And what I see is that everything I experienced as a young person, people feel now of uncertainty, fear, excitement, curiosity, um, wanting to try things out, but they feel it with the volume turned up. Mm. So what everybody feels is intensified. And a lot of that is because of digital media, because so, everything you see is played out on digital media so you see your friends and you know so much more so you compare so much more and com comparing yourself to others is a route to absolute 100% misery mm. um, so that's a very long question and there's tons yeah. more it's like I'm like a kind of a kind of um, I could, I'm very interested in the subject yeah. I think it's really interesting it's fascinating it's, I always think about in terms of jobs the fact that there's almost so much choice of what we could do and almost a pressure that you can do anything. You need to be famous. You need to get loads of Instagram followers or you can be a pop star or, you know, you can't just have a normal job now. It's like there's always pressure and it, I think it makes us so much less content I with agree. stuff and that discontent, you know, causes so many problems. I mean, one of the questions I ask in the book is that, you know, everyone says to you now, go, you know, go for your dreams, reach your stars. And I kind of think that's pretty unfair. Like, you want to fulfil your potential. You want to be... You want to flourish and grow through your life. But if you, you know, if you set goals for yourself that are way beyond the reality of what they're likely to be, you're going to just be so disappointed with yourself all the time. So, you know, one of the questions I ask my clients is, what do you think it is reasonable to expect of your life? What can you kind of build for your life that you really care about? What matters to you? And when people think about it seriously, it really isn't about followers and being famous and being a superstar. It is much more about having someone to do nothing with, you know, to sit and watch a Netflix series with, with supper or a cup of tea 
with cosiness, go for walks with, talk to or not talk to. You know, that's really what... And have a roof over your head. I mean, you need to work and you know, pay the bills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, one of the things that I'm really taking away from your book is about how the, you know, our relationships are the most important thing in our lives and how we need to cultivate those as much as we can and, and yeah, come back to what's really important. I think. But I think all our relationships matter. Mm-hmm. So I think our work relationships matter a lot. I mean, I, I'm not saying work doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, Freud talked about love and work, work and love, that's all there is. So we need our work to give us purpose and meaning and to feed our curiosity and to have a kind of goal, a place to head towards. And our work relationships are really important so that we go home and we kind of have something we can talk about and we meet new people and, you know, your work must be a huge part of who you are and, you know, how you feel about yourself and the world. Um, so I think it's all relationships that matter, not just our love relationships. And mm-hmm. friendships matter. Our girlfriends. I mean, I wouldn't survive without my girlfriends. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I've I've been going to um, women's circles in the last couple of years. Have you? Realising how, how important that is to have sisters and um, get to share in that way, I think is so important. I hope, yeah. I hope more people are realising how important... Um, not being lonely as I heard on a podcast this morning that being lonely is like smoking 15 cigarettes a day day. for your health it's unbelievably 7.7 million people live alone in this country Mm. of 60 million yeah and most of them are women Mm. so that's it's a big figure yeah yeah gosh um but with your dreams, I mean, do you, how realistic do you think your dreams are? So what do you, in the next few years, what's your dream? I used to have a lot of goals and a lot of things I would write down, like wanting to be... Stick it on the fridge. On the TV, talking yeah. about anxiety and things. And I've, in the last couple of years, kind of calmed it down. I think I've achieved Dialed quite a few things. Yeah, well yeah, I've achieved quite a few things. I've realised, oh yeah, it's quite fun when that quote-unquote success happens. But actually... It's not that big a deal. It's not really worth like stressing yourself out or beating yourself up over or burning yourself. Yeah, out. burning yourself out. So I've, I've still got you know dreams about. I quite like to get married. My boyfriend knows <laughs> knows this. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I have taken the pressure off myself. I did used to put more pressure on myself. I think to to achieve things. And, I mean, what research shows is... I mean, I think it's really interesting. It shows that you're maturing, doesn't it? In some uh-huh, ways. That, that would li- be nice. Well, it shows that you're processing and you're listening to yourself. So if you'd stayed fixed of what you felt two years ago, you'd have this slight sort of armour, wouldn't you, of, like, I've got to be successful. But it feels like you've let yourself learn and you've let yourself expand and you've let yourself grow and develop through what you've learned, which has meant that you feel calmer. Mm. and wiser um, and it is interesting you want to get married when stats are that less people are getting married now than ever before that's that's interesting isn't it more people just living together and but there but there is i mean the stats on marriage are 42% of marriages don't survive there are less people getting married there are less people getting divorced than before, but that is because less people are getting married. And the biggest increase is people who are cohabiting. But people who cohabit are three times more likely to separate. 
Ah, than people that are together, but they... The, the, the married. So separate houses, maybe, is the answer. I've often thought this. <laughs> well, there's that, there's that, the people living apart together, the lats. Mm. But that tends to be much more people who have second or third relationships later in life. Mm. I mean, at your age, you're likely to want to have children, so you're likely to want two of you mm. to bring up a family together. Um, this is very interesting to me, very interesting. I heard that um, married men are the happiest and then married women, the least happy, and single women are happier than... Um, no, no, married no. men are the happiest, then... <laughs> no, is that not right? Tell me. Well, maybe married men are the happiest. Oh, OK, yeah. I mean, in the Harvard long-term study of, of a 75-year study of looking at happiness, people who have committed loving relationships are wealthier, healthier, happier, they live longer, they are richer, and they have happier children. So on every measure, and they, they have a better memory, and they get, well, I said healthier. So on every me- measure, people who have loving, stable relationships do better. If you get divorced and you then have a loving, stable relationship, you go back into the thriving category. Um, so, I mean, it affects every aspect of mm. our life. But we need to learn how to be in relationship, how to grow in that relationship, how to adapt and thrive together. And that's a tough ask. It's not easy. But, and it takes endurance and giving, you know, kind of being a bit patient and being pissed off because he doesn't take out the bins or, you know. Yes, this is very pertinent to me in my life right now. <laughs> I'm just about to have my 40th wedding anniversary. Oh, wow. Congratulations. We're, we're renewing our vows. Amazing. And I think um, certainly one of the things I think is that he's the person I most want to run over or really kind of I'm most furious with. <laughs> but I've actually never wanted to leave him. Yeah. He's still the person I want to wake up with and the person I want to go to sleep with. So, I mean, the, you, I have the most extreme feelings about him. And, again, if you look at research, indifference is the opposite of love, not hate. So it's how you kind of learn to love and hate each other and live together and have fun together and be apart and be together and all of those things. Do you have any advice for happy relationships for everyone listening and for me? I think you have to kind of work out how we fit together. Do we, do we, before you, I think the person you choose to be your partner, if you're going to have children, is the most important decision you make in your life. So don't make it from the in love, having amazing sex brain. So that's my first kind of very strong belief, because you don't really know yourself and you don't really know them. But do we fit together? Do we have the same values? Do we, um, do we go through the tough times well together? Do we support each other? Are we mainly kind to each other? Do we have fun together? Um, all of those things. Do we build bridges of communication? And, and do we fight well? You know, do we love well? I think that kindness, having fun, is probably the two big things. Mm-hmm. Respect. You respect someone who is kind to you. And then you you reciprocate. If you you set up patterns together that create reciprocally good reciprocally good relationship, and vice versa. 
Really good advice. I think I often I often think that relationships are the hardest things in life, but also the most rewarding. I suppose so. Yeah, when sticking it's out. true. Yeah. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared. It's been absolute gold. I'm going to really look forward to listening back to this when I'm editing it and learning some more. Where can people find out more about you and buy your books and all that sort of thing? So I'm Julia Samuel MBE on Instagram and on Facebook. And I have a website, www.juliasamuel.co.uk. So you can find me um, on there. My book um, will be in all the bookshops and Amazon and um, it's been really lovely to meet you and thank you for taking the time to read my book and thinking about these things and it's lovely to meet someone who is so curious and engaged and that's such a, a lovely way for you to go forward in your life it's lovely to see um, thank you so much thank you for talking to us Thank you so much for listening. I really hope that you gained a lot from this episode. Come on over to Instagram and let me know what are you taking from this episode. Find me at Chloe Brotheridge. And I would love it if you would leave me a review in the podcast app or in iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast, leave me a rating. And is there someone in your life that would really benefit from this podcast? You can let them know by sharing this podcast. I'd be so, so grateful. So I'm just wishing you a wonderful week ahead, sending you loads of love. Hopefully you'll tune in again and I'll see you soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.